Lord, we do desire to praise you this morning. We desire that you uh, be glorified in all that we do, not only this morning, but day by day, each day, and that we may be filled with your spirit, walk in your spirit, and allow you to uh, have your way in our lives. We just praise you for the salvation that we have and all that comes with it. And as we look at some of the blessings that you bestowed upon us, that they would be an encouragement to walk with you. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book of Romans, we have gotten to verse 17. We're going to focus mainly on that verse today. And verse 17 completes, essentially, not the whole area of sanctification, but basically gives us most of the major principles dealing with sanctification. And beginning in verse 17, he's going to transition to a related area to sanctification, but not directly. In fact, we've seen already through verse 17, verse 17 verses chapter 8, very significant insights into how to live the Christian life. Spent a lot of time in chapter 7, knowing how not to live the Christian life. Frustration of trying to do it by the law. Frustration by doing it in our own strength. Chapter 8 is the passage that gives us the blessing and the power that's available. So it's going to transition to things that the believer will encounter. In fact, what God will use probably more than many other experiences that we have. We're going to see a transition in chapter 17 to suffering. So once we have all of these tremendous blessings, it does not mean that we will not also encounter difficulty or suffering. So verse 17 kind of transitions into that. But even it in chapter 8 is presented from uh, a positive perspective. And we won't get that far today, but we'll get into that next week. We have lots of examples in history of believers that suffered. In fact, in the book of Acts, we have a record of martyrdom and suffering. Obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate one, died on the cross for us. In the Colosseum was the scene of many believers that lost their lives because they believed in Jesus Christ. So the theme of suffering is a major one in Scripture, and it is contained in this glorious chapter, chapter 8. But it's presented, like I said, from the perspective of hope and the perspective of God dealing with sin in an ultimate way that we'll talk about next time. So that's the scene of suffering, you might say. We've been looking, obviously, justification. Now we're completing or getting towards the end of sanctification. We're in the latter part of chapter 8. Well, close to the middle, I guess, right? But the main emphasis in terms of sanctification, in fact, he's going to transition to glory. Lots of glory from here on out. So we saw principles, chapter 6, problems, chapter 7. Now in chapter 8, the power available to live the Christian life. Quick review of the principles that we've seen in chapter 8. Obviously, there's 16 that we saw in chapter 6 and 7. If I remember right, we had 9 in chapter 6, and uh, in between 9 and 17 in chapter 7. 
and the glorious truth of the power of the Holy Spirit in us, we don't have to try to obey, if you will, in our own strength, but if we allow the Holy Spirit to work, we will, in fact, not only obey, but fulfill the requirements of the law, is the way that Paul puts it. Number 18, walking in the Spirit is the means by which we are sanctified. We can't do it on our own. God does it, but he does it through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. And that's why he focuses on the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, because that's the source of power. And that should be our focus as well, as we attempt to live out day by day. Then we've seen in the last few sessions, not so much last week, but the concept of our participation or our part, and there's not a whole lot that he mentions. In fact, it's not even a command. It's more by way of implication that we participate in sanctification. It's not automatic. It's not imposed. We simply walk by faith, trusting that God will, in fact, work in us to produce sanctification. One of the means that he will use, in fact, we'll see this principle, is that he will use suffering as one of the primary instruments in bringing us into conformity to his son, or we call that sanctification. So we've seen verses 1 through 11, the power that's available, glorious part of chapter 8, power available to be able to overcome the old nature, sinful flesh, more of a biblical description. And then we've been in chapter or chapter 8, verses 12 through 17, sonship, very important. Sanctification involves a relationship. It's not a religion, but a relationship, that of father-son, and we are beneficiaries of adoption as son. We've looked at that the last two weeks. We saw the obligation of the Spirit. That's the little portion where we participate, and it's not obligation by gutting it out, but it's obligation in gratitude. We've been stressing that idea. 14 focuses on the sonship. 15, adoption as sons of believers. 15 and 16, kind of expanding it. And then the result of sonship is what we're going to look at in a little bit of detail today. We started looking at it yesterday. (laughs) Time goes so fast, it seems like yesterday. Airship of the believers, that's in verse 17. And I want to spend some time on it because I don't think very many Christians really understand the concept. Now, if you were here last week, you can probably answer the basic questions that I sent in the email. Remember, I asked three questions. One of them, can you explain the doctrine of airship? How many of you feel confident that you can do that? All of you should at some level. The second question is not often discussed. The second one is airship a present possession or is it a future hope for that possession? What did we say last week? Yes. yes. <laughs> you know, I thought about that. We were listening to the lecture on the way. I was listening to, okay. was listening to your gear last week right. as we went home. But one of the things that occurred to me is in, even in, in everyday life, In other words, I am an heir of my parents, and that is 
present and future. You have the full of it when your parents pass away, then it it comes to you. But you are their heir all along. Because you're a son or a daughter. Son or daughter in that position. And I so I thought about it from just how it works that way that it would work the same way there, that we have it now and Yeah. But biblically, and particularly Old Testament and also New Testament, it is more present than our culture and our thought. When we think of an inheritance, it's out of our hands. In other words, we don't have it until the parent dies. That was not necessarily the case even in the Old Testament. That's what we reviewed. So the answer, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you, you think of some of the stories about, um, like, the prodigal son. That's right. You know, like, the, old, the older son said, hey, this is my position. This is right. what I have coming to me. And We use that as an example of present control, present possession. Yeah. So Connie's answer is correct. Both. In other words, there's a present aspect, and I think that present aspect is here in Chapter 17 that we'll look at. Isn't a big chunk of present aspect is the indwelling? Yes. Yeah, that's part of it. But it also has future aspects that we'll enjoy in the future in its fullest sense. Second question, so we'll review that. Second question, is it given by grace? Is it a free gift? And or is it based on something that we do? What's the answer to those questions, that question? Yes, again. And this is an area that most people don't think about, but we'll look at some verses that seem to indicate that idea where the word is found. So in verse 17, we're looking at airship. Not airship, (laughs) but airship. (laughs) Pronounced basically the same, but spelled a little bit differently, obviously. So airship in the sense of an inheritance in the sense of something passed on to us, and biblically something passed on that we have, I believe, at the moment of salvation, we become sons, children, and we also become heirs. And we have present possession, much like the analogy that I used last time was the children of Israel, they possess the land, and the land is viewed as possession. And they enjoyed all the fruits, literally, of the land. All of the uh, produce, all of the blessings that uh, go with ownership of a land. So we'll take a look at that and I'll review some of the, the passages. So we saw the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, we have a preposition in the English text that's translating part of the uh, spirit there. And that spirit, in the Greek, I don't want to get too technical here, but it's in the dative case. And generally, that gives the idea of something with something else, not rather than the spirit himself testifies to. It doesn't have that idea necessarily. And there's no preposition there. It's within the uh, the noun itself. And the common understanding, and I think it's legitimate, but not from this verse, is that the Holy Spirit does, in fact, inwardly 
testify to our spirit or gives us indications, but not based on this verse. This verse, the spirit himself testifies, you might say, alongside of or with our spirit, dative case, along with our testimony. In other words, we can testify, I trusted in Christ and there's all these promises and with these promises comes sonship, comes heirship, and the Spirit also confirms that in terms of God. In other words, the Spirit talks to God as well. Does that make sense? So our Spirit, along with the Holy Spirit, testify that we are children of God. Not that God needs that, but it's given to us so that we have double assurance that, in fact, we are children of God. And then in verse 17... And if children, then the natural outcome of being children are heirs. All right? Now, I also mentioned last time, and I'll just remind you, in the original manuscripts, where we get our Greek text and our Hebrew Bibles, there's literally thousands of Greek manuscripts. And based on these thousands of Greek manuscripts, scholars piece together the New Testament that we have. Some of them are very complete. Some of them are entire Bibles. Some of them are only bits and pieces of fragments of portions of the text. And from that, because these are copies, we don't have the originals. We don't have what Paul wrote. In other words, the original parchment or skin or whatever he wrote on. We don't have any of the Old Testament as well, New Testament or Old Testament. All we have are copies, and a lot of times copies of copies of copies. And there's a whole science that tries to reconstruct documents. And in fact, it's, it's not just biblical. We don't have any of the originals of any of the Greek philosophers. We don't have any of them. And I've mentioned several times, we have thousands of copies of the New Testament Whereas like Plato or Aristotle, Aristotle, I think we only have like five copies of his document. The science of textual criticism takes those five documents, reconstructs what he wrote, and obviously there's whole universities that have Greek departments or classic departments where they trust that what they have represents what Aristotle wrote. Well, the New Testament... We have an abundance of manuscripts. We have a tremendous, a greater amount of confidence that what we have is what Paul wrote. In fact, we have more than what Paul wrote because in some of the copies, some of the scribes make additions and commentary and all that. Okay? Well, kind of a long explanation to discuss commas. <laughs> In the Greek text, there are no punctuation. In fact, all of the letters run together. There's not even a break between words. But it's clear enough to be able to sort it out and be able to come up with meaningful sentences. So, uh, New American Standard has to make a decision to help you understand the text. So it puts a comma. And if children, heirs, also heirs of God... And fellow heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs, it groups those together. And I would actually prefer to take this comma and put it between 
heirs of God, comma, and fellow heirs, because I, I think he's talking and describing, and I support this from other passages that have the word heirship or inheritance or to inherit something, the verbal form. From all these passages, I come to some conclusions that that little simple comma may be a little, what's the word? Uh, I don't want to say deceiving, but misleading, I guess, is the best word there. I think what we have here is a description of two distinct areas of airship. And that's what I want to develop a little bit and give you some other verses to kind of support that idea. So we have, if children, heirs also. I mean, one follows the other. If you're a child and your parent has an estate, then you're an heir to that estate. Now, my brother doesn't remember, but when our father died, because he was only months old, our dad left us $300. Can you imagine that? And I don't think that he remembers, but I gave him 100 I took 100 and gave 100 to my sister. Huge estate, huh? <laughs> that came as a result of all he owned was a... I think it was a Volkswagen, and they were able to sell it for $300. That was the extent of that portion of the estate. He died of cirrhosis of the liver as a result of alcoholism. So the point I'm making here is if you're an heir of God... We have a huge estate. There's no comparison. Even if we have earthly parents that have left us a meager estate, or whether our parents are millionaires... There's no comparison between the earthly and what God has granted the believer. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. In fact, in this passage, heirs of God, he is our inheritance. All right. So we'll discuss a little bit. And we started last week and this, this is uh, just a quick review. I gave you some background. One of the things I was trying to show was that our concept in our culture of inheritance and heirship and issues related is a little bit different from the Old Testament and also even the New Testament time. So I gave you some background. In the Roman culture, the firstborn was no different from any of the other brothers and sisters. They all would be given the same inheritance. In fact, the emphasis of the Roman system was that the father was dominant and the father made the decisions and the choices. And if the father so chose, he could even select a child that was not a natural born son and replace even one of the natural born sons and give him the name of the family, give him a greater portion of the inheritance, or even all of it. He had the final say in that system. The Jewish system was a little bit different from it, in that the firstborn had a double portion, if you remember from a lot of passages in the Old Testament. So that was one of the things that we need to keep in mind because Paul may be using some of this background that that culture in the first century would have been more familiar with than uh, the culture that we live in today. So you need to keep that in mind in understanding some of these passages.
One thing that we pointed out from the Old Testament, that much of the inheritance was in the form of the land. In fact, even Abraham in Genesis 15, 7, the Abrahamic covenant, if you remember, the land was promised as an inheritance. Now, later, when the children of Israel entered the land and conquered the land, then each succeeding generation, the land was that inheritance. And the concept was different from our concept in that a death was not required. In other words, when uh, they were in the land, they possessed the land. And the, uh, the family possessed it, and the children shared in that possession. And it didn't require that the father die before the children could benefit from living in the land. So that gives you that idea that I mentioned last time of a present possession that you can enjoy the blessings of the possession here and now, but it also has that long range and future aspect as well. There's an interesting passage at the end of Israel's history recorded in Ezekiel 44. Remember the context of the book of Ezekiel is when the nation is about to lose everything, they will be expelled from the land. They're going to lose the inheritance. And the interesting thing about Ezekiel 44:28, it looks ahead to the new covenant and it promises that Yahweh himself will be their inheritance. Ezekiel 44:28. Now that's future. It's even future from our day. The reason I mention this is because some of this background is going to come into play in the passages that we'll be looking at, not only in Romans 8, but uh, the passages that deal with inheritance. For example, we will be looking at this concept of present possession and also long-range future possession or ultimate possession of the inheritance. There's a present possession. And right now, God is our inheritance right now and all that he's promised, all that he's blessed us with, Ephesians says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. It's like a bank account that we can draw on here and now. All of the promises that he's made, particularly those that we need to be able to live the Christian life in this context. Connie. Does that mean that any Jew for now has a head start on that Yahweh? Yes, absolutely, because he's a member of the body of Christ. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, he has a double portion. So in the New Testament, I showed you the terms and I gave you some of the uh, uh, usages and I won't go over them very quickly. We talked about this last time. The noun form for an heir, in other words, the person who inherits is kleronomas, if you want to pronounce it. Uh, that occurs, oh, I don't know, 15, I can't remember, times in the New Testament. It occurs here in this context, so we want to look at it. Then we have the another noun form that refers to the inheritance itself. First word referring to the one that inherits the inheritance, and then the second word, the inheritance. So it's translated inheritance, but it has the idea of present possession, present possession, like the land of Israel. And this is also New Testament. 
It, it can be translated property, if that is what the inheritance entails, and oftentimes it referred to property as an inheritance. And then there's a verbal form, and notice the word is very similar, clay ranomel. Anyway, uh, that's the verbal form, has the similar idea, to possess, both in the present and also there's future aspects. And again, I'm going to give you the verses and we won't look them up. Just as Karen said, an example is the prodigal son where the son said, well, let me take possession of my inheritance and he squandered it. So the other son allowed the the father to manage the estate. The prodigal son wanted to manage the estate himself. And that was part of the idea of inheritance. You have present possession and you could do that. Obviously, that parable explains that. So there are four aspects that I want to bring out that are not commonly referred to. One, this present possession idea. Would somebody look up Titus 3, 7? Because I think it gives that present tense sense. But also, there's a future aspect that is not possessed now, you might say. It's reserved. In fact, that's the word that we find in First Peter 1, uh, verses 4 through 5. Somebody look at it. You got it? Read it loud, because you're, you're a mile away. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The hope of eternal life. You have eternal life now? Is that a present possession? Yes. In fact, we looked at a lot of other verses last week that speak of salvation being an inheritance. If you do a word study and you look at all of the words, you're going to find salvation, eternal life, things that we have here and now. Here's another one that we didn't look at last week, Titus 3.7. Who's got First Peter 1, 4, and 5? we got that one. Dwayne. An inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. Now, it describes this inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and then notice the last part there. Read it, sorry. That does not fade away, reserved in heaven. Reserved in heaven. There's a future aspect to our inheritance. And you could even use that Hebrews, what is it? The Hebrews passage, I don't remember exactly, I've got it in my notes, where it talks about the death of the uh, the parent, I guess you could say, and Christ dying. He's using the analogy of when Christ died, now the inheritance is available to the believer, and it's a pr- present idea. And it took the death of Christ for us to be able to have access to that inheritance. So there's a present possession aspect, but there's also some aspects of it that are still future. So what we have now is going to be magnified when we go to be with the Lord. And I think part of that is in view in this passage is the reason I'm bringing it out in uh, Romans 8.17. Okay, so we talked about Jesus, and we looked up Hebrews 1.2 last time, and it speaks of Jesus being the heir of all things. And the reason this is important is because in the passage that we're looking at, we are co-heirs with Jesus. In other words, 
all that Jesus has, all things, we inherit as well. And there's some present aspects of it that we can enjoy here and now. And there's future fulfillment or future expansion of that estate. So this is a tremendous thought and concept when it comes to living the Christian life. This is what the text encourages us to set our minds on. Remember, we saw that in the earlier passages. Because this is reality. This is the truth. So, it's a, it's a free gift. We looked up Matthew 19.29, and I think we looked up Hebrews 1.4. It's a free gift, and some of these relate to salvation. Salvation is by grace, through faith, nothing we do, no works. The interesting thing that is not brought out, there's another aspect that involves participation. And that's the next thing I want to look at. First of all, it's a free gift by grace at salvation. The moment we become children, we have an estate and we have access to that property. And it's available. It's like a bank account that we can draw on. And that is what, in this context, that bank account, the Holy Spirit primarily, the indwelling presence, that is what enables us to to live the Christian life in the way that God would have us. But here's the interesting part. Heirs of God. So we are, God is our inheritance and fellow heirs with Christ. I think this is a different category. Additional, additional to being heirs of God. We are co-heirs. In fact, there's one word there. Fellow heirs is one word in the Greek text. I'll show it to you later. Fellow heirs with Christ. So we have heirship with Christ. That means everything that Christ is an heir, and the Hebrews 1-2 passage says he's heir of all things. The entire universe belongs to Christ. Now, we don't possess the entire universe, but in the future, that's a future aspect of it. We will enjoy everything that Jesus owns and possesses. But... If, indeed, we suffer, that's why this part here, fellow heirs with Christ, we have a conditional aspect to it. That's why I have separated and called the two aspects of this idea of heirship. There's an aspect that is a free gift that is ours now with future fulfillment or additional benefits, you might say, but there's also a condition to co-heirship with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him. Now he's transitioning to suffering, and he's going to discuss this from a very positive perspective, beginning not only here, but particularly verse 18 that we'll get into next week. All right? But I see this condition, if indeed we suffer with him, A believer can thwart or stand in the way of, or, you know, we can derail this process by being unfaithful. In other words, the unfaithful believer, he may suffer. In fact, I'm going to talk about different ways that we do suffer. But what he's talking about in this context is we're suffering with Christ as Christ had promised us. 
In other words, as we are faithful, we don't have to seek out suffering. It comes knocking every day. It'll come to us. And if we respond rightly to it, I think that's the idea here. If we indeed suffer with him, in other words, in the same way that he does, as if he is the one that is experiencing the suffering. And he promised that we would experience his suffering. In fact, in another context, we'll look at this next time probably, Paul says that we fill up the sufferings of Christ. So we continue to experience what he experienced just simply by living the way that God wants us to live. We don't seek it out. It's going to come seeking us out. But the point I'm making here, there's a condition here. Now let's look at some other passages where we have this conditional idea, and there's several of them. In fact, I was surprised at how many there were. So it's a free gift. That's one aspect. Can't earn it. Can't do anything. But to be a co-heir and some aspects of this inheritance are conditional. And we'll spend the rest of the time looking at that conditional aspect. You can view it as a reward, and the primary time that we'll experience that is in the kingdom, because there's lots of passages where the word uh, inheritance is related to the millennial kingdom. So that's that future aspect, and some of that is conditional. Following here? You got a frown on your face here? Nope. All right. Does this make sense? Okay. So there's these four aspects that I'm laying out here. Present possession that we have access now, future fulfillment that we still don't have access to, and then thirdly, it's as a free gift, but then they, fourthly, there's an aspect of an inheritance that could be lost, could be squandered like the prodigal son. It's as a reward. It's like rewards. And I mentioned last time, we've talked about rewards And uh, how we live now, there's rewards available in the future, and I think primarily during the millennial kingdom. If you're faithful now to walk with the Lord, you have an expanded, you might say, estate waiting for you. So let's look at some of these verses. Ephesians 5.5, notice this one. Somebody look that one up. Somebody get the, the Galatians passage. You got Ephesians Do Ephesians, who wants to do Galatians? And what I want you to notice, Jacob's got Galatians. What I want you to notice, these are directed at believers, and the word inheritance, either the verbal form or the noun form, are present in these passages. And notice the conditional nature of what's being discussed here. Now, let's get some other people to read. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3. The word doesn't occur there, but it's going to set the groundwork for something else here. Who wants to do that one? You got that one? And why don't we do, let's skip Jude 14, but you can copy that one. Somebody look up uh, Revelation 2, 26 to 27. You got the Revelation one? Okay. Notice... And maybe by works is too strong. Maybe if you want to put faithful living, in other words, the possibility of living either faithfully or unfaithfully. Ephesians 5, 5. This is to the believer. Read it. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or who is covetous, idolater, has no inheritance. No inheritance. 
Now, that doesn't mean he's not saved and he has eternal life, which is the inheritance in the present tense sense. He's talking about a future time, a future aspect, and the word inheritance is in that context. It's conditional. So if you live an immoral life, if you live whatever else is described there, and the believer in the flesh does sometimes and can live in everything that's described there. And remember Galatians 5, this is in the context of walking in the spirit and or walking in the flesh. The option of living in the flesh or the option of living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Got that one, Jacob? I'm starting in verse 19. That'd be good. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. And none of you are guilty of that, right? (laughs) Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's talking to believers. He's talking about living in the flesh. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not going to enter the kingdom. But what that means is they are not, they are losing that inheritance that is available in the kingdom. With some other verses, it'll be clearer. In fact, if you know a lot of the verses related to the kingdom, in fact, some of the parables of Jesus, you can lose reward in the kingdom. This is the concept. And it's put in the, in the framework of an inheritance. And that's what that verse says there. Now, the word doesn't occur in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3, but it does describe probably an aspect of what we will experience in the kingdom if we are faithful. Paul is actually reprimanding the church at Corinth. Sandy, you got 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? Did you get that? Do you not know that the saints are going to participate? This is co-heirship with Christ. Christ is going to judge unbelievers and believers before the millennial kingdom. There's going to be a judgment. And we participate. That's what it means to be a co-heir. Keep reading. Not only are we going to judge men, but what else? And if the world shall be judged by you, you unaware, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that we shall judge angels? How much more things? Now, the word doesn't occur there, but I'm using that to give you the idea that co-heirship is going to involve judgment. Christ is going to judge, and he's going to delegate. You guys might judge North Carolina. Who knows? You know, We're going to judge angels. In other words, demonic forces are going to be presented to us, and we are going to be part of judging them. But there's a condition. If we are faithful, we will judge them. We won't read Jude 14, but it speaks of the same thing. But Revelation 2, 26 and 27, who's got that one. And he who overcomes and keeps my work until the end. Notice overcoming. In other words, that's faithful believers. 
In fact, all of the letters to the seven churches, it's addressed to faithful believers. They're called overcomers. Keep reading. My works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have from my father. And who's speaking there? Who is the I? Jesus delivering messages to the seven churches. We will dash the nations. Judgment. But I believe that it's a co-heirship and it's conditional. That's part of what we potentially could lose if in fact we are living unfaithfully. Did you have a... So, so that those engaged sin but have repented? Yeah, yeah. The overcomer is, none of us are free of sin. But to overcome is we are, we gain some consistency in overcoming. Right. Yeah, all of us need to confess sin when it enters. All of us need, all of us have the tendency of walking in the flesh. And when we walk in the flesh, we need to turn around and confess that, First John 1, 9, and then live faithfully. And as we grow, we become more consistent in that. So, Co-heirship is going to involve judging the nations, judging individuals, judging even angels. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is reprimanding the Corinthians because they are doing things they shouldn't do. And, and in fact, he's using that as an example. They should deal with things internally and not take them to take it to the uh, civil authorities. And he's reprimanding Isn't there anyone amongst you that has any discernment to be able to deal with these things? So he's reprimanding them. And in that context, he's talking about us judging people, men, and even angels. And there's also rulership. Somebody look up Matthew 25, 31. And while you're there, you read 34 as well. Who's got that one? And since you're in Revelation, you want to read uh, Revelation 3.21, but Matthew 25. Somebody got got that one? Dwayne, go ahead. 25, verse 31. The context, if you look at verse 1, we won't read it. He's talking about the kingdom. This is after the second coming. There's going to be Christ return, Christ returning in judgment. Now's the time of salvation, but when he returns, it's a time of judgment. And he gives three parables that are judgment parables at the beginning of the kingdom. And in verse 31, we have the third parable there. Want to read it first? When the Son of Man comes. When he comes, when the Son of Man comes, Jesus Christ. In his glory, and all the holy angels with him. Who comes with him? Sorry, Dwayne. <laughs> The angels, there's other context. In fact, Revelation 19, the saints come as well. Keep reading. And he will sit on the throne of his glory. Sit on his throne, rulership. Keep reading. Next verse. 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you, the foundation. See the word there? Inherit the kingdom. Prepared before the foundation of the world. The word inheritance. This is that future aspect. And this is co-rulership. And I believe there's also a conditional element to it. 
And that's brought out by Revelation 3.21 to another church. And the idea of overcomers is there as well. Got it, Karen? To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his Seating on a throne, that's rulership. You guys might rule North Carolina. Somebody in this room might rule Albuquerque. Co-rulership. That's co-heirship. Make sense? You see the conditional aspect? And it's to those that overcome. Not every believer overcomes. It's conditional. So you have this fourth aspect. So it's as a reward, the fourth aspect, as a reward based on faithfulness. Just like rewards are based on faithfulness. Then the last part of verse 17, if we are faithful so that we may also be glorified with him, co-glorification. Now, all believers will be ultimately glorified, but there are some aspects of that glorification that can be lost. The aspects of rulership, for example, the aspect of opportunity to participate in his judgment. You might chart it in this way. The unbeliever is a slave to sin. All of us at one time were unbelievers. We were converted. This is the beginning of Romans. We became sons. That's what it's talking about in Romans 8. But as sons, we also become heirs. H-E-I-R-S. And as heirs, we look forward to glory. And this is where the text is going to take us. In fact, Verse 17 refers to the glory. He's going to expand the aspect of glory. You could chart it looking at the specific words themselves. The word co-heir in verse 17 is the Greek word with a little preposition before it. Soon, but because of the uh, the words there, it's with a gamma. Sug kleronomoi, in other words, co-heir. See that? And interestingly, in this context, Paul also has this idea of co-suffering, one word, co-suffering, suffering with, and you have the soon there, except in this case, because of the the lettering, we have a M sound. And if you're co-heirs and co-sufferers, there's a third one there. What's the third one? Co-glorified. Exactly. Very good. How do I say You got it. You got it. Very good. Very good. It's one word. Co-glorified. Very good. And notice the prefix at the beginning, soon, again. And then dogza, dogzagzo, or thomen, the idea of co-glorification with Jesus Christ. So we share, but there's a condition there. That's the whole point that we're making. So the concept of heirship has these four different aspects. Aspect of present possession that we have access now. We can draw on that account now. All the spiritual blessings that he's promised. We don't exhaust that because there's still future aspects of it that we'll enjoy in the future. There's also heirship in terms of grace, in terms of not earning it. And then fourthly, there's the aspect where there's a conditional aspect And I think that pertains primarily to the millennial kingdom. Is that too complicated? Too many ideas there? So 
we're pretty much done. He's going to transition now, as he did, if you suffer with him or co-suffer. Beginning in verse 18 through 30, he's going to focus on the inevitability of suffering with Christ. And the focus is primarily suffering as a believer. And I break it down into two parts. The future hope in suffering is presented to us in a very positive way. And we'll take a look at that next week. Eight, uh, 18 through 27, our future hope in suffering. And we're going to look at the antithesis of the suffering, verse 18. We'll start with that next week. And I'm going to skip down to the reasons we suffer. Just to give you a preview, we'll focus more on this next week, just so you know. There are at least five reasons why the believer suffers. At least five reasons. Only the last few here are the ones that are in view in the Romans passage. We can suffer as the consequences of our own sin. That has no glory, that has no benefit. In fact, it's destructive. And when we walk in the flesh, it's inevitable. In fact, if we continually walk in the flesh, we will be disciplined. And sometimes Christian suffers because of discipline. That's the Hebrews 12 passage. Sometimes uh, we are being refined. That is what is in view in Romans 8. Where God is conforming us. That's part of the sanctifying process. Conforming us to his image. The book of Job is an example of sometimes we'll suffer and we'll never know why. If Job didn't write the book of Job, Job never got an answer as to why he suffered. God just called upon him to trust him. Now, we're given insight because God was doing in the book of Job things in the unseen angelic world that we don't see. But Job never had access to that unless he wrote the book and then obviously he had revelation. And another reason we suffer is for righteousness sake. That's what's in view in in Romans primarily. And here are some of the verses that we'll look at next week. Closing thought, walking in the spirit results in kingdom rewards. You might even include kingdom inheritance. Who wants to close for us? Jacob, uh, you're here with us today. Why don't you close for us? Father God, I just thank you for this time. And like Connie said at the beginning, just everything that we've been teaching and showing us um, through the fellowship for this opportunity for us to get And also so much for the for this promise that we experience today, but also gives us hope for the future. Um, it's great, great inheritance you have for us. We thank you and praise you and glorify you and your son. All of this is possible. I ask that as we go about this week, we carry forth um, what we learn. Others, be with those who are those who have needs, help issues, and ask these things. Amen.